thank you for listening to the sermons from St. Timothy's Church. For more information, check out our website at stthimothysstores.org or visit us at 6 p.m. on Sundays at the Nathan Hale Inn. And Father, we do pour out our praise to you in all seasons, in all circumstances, in all situations. Um, when we're tired, when we're celebrating, um, whatever season we're in, Father, we just praise you for your goodness and your faithfulness. We praise you for the hope that you are bringing. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. It is good to be together again. <laughs> And like we do every week, before we spend in time, we spend time engaging with God's word. As corporately, we want to just give God a chance to speak to us individually. Give God's word a chance to be alive and living and active and speaking to us uniquely. Um, so I invite you to just listen as we read this scripture passage for today, Mark 5. It's also in your bulletin, so if you want to read along, feel free. But you're also welcome to just... Relax, close your eyes, listen to the word, and see what God highlights for you. What word stands out, what phrase stands out. What is God wanting to draw your attention to in this passage? What is he wanting to talk to you about? And this is a great start of a conversation. So if he highlights anything for you in this passage, this is something to say, Jesus, let's talk about this more. I want to know why are you highlighting this for me? But as you prepare to just hear God's word, I invite you to just shake off the stress of the week. Um, close your eyes. Let go of any burdens that you brought in with you, any worries, any stresses, any physical pain. And just take a deep breath in, just breathing in the goodness of God. And a long breath out, just releasing worry, fear, anxiety, or pain. So Father, speak to us through your word. We are listening with open hands, with open hearts, and with open minds. Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth he said to her daughter your faith has healed you go in peace and be freed from your suffering while Jesus was still speaking some people came from the house of Jairus the synagogue leader your daughter is dead they said why bother the teacher anymore overhearing what they said Jesus told him don't be afraid just believe 
He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in to them and said, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And he put them all out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Ka'um, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Father, in the silence, just highlight to us, what is your word to each of us uniquely tonight? What do you want to say to us? And I think, like we said, this is sort of a long narrative, but I think this is a fascinating narrative um, because it appears in all three synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and probably we suspect that historically it did happen like in this order, but you, oftentimes the, the gospel writers will like break things up or move stories around in order to emphasize the point that they want to make. But in all three of these, the gospel narratives, these stories happen just like this, just in this order. So Jairus, and then the woman with the issue of the blood, and then the delay, and then getting to Jairus' daughter. So that says to me that there's something about the order of the story. It's not the healings are important, um, the, the he- but it's not just about the healings themselves. It's the order in which they happen. There's something important about that that matters to all the gospel writers. So we're going to look at why it happens specific why. It- it happens specifically in Mark, but that's just something to note. When something happens consistently across all of the Gospels, there's something of significance going on here that all the Gospel writers are wanting to make a similar point. So we're going to dive in and try to understand what's so significant, what's so central to understanding who Jesus is, that these healings happen boom, 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 like one, two, three, right in a row, um, and that they happen this way in all of the Gospels. So in order to do that, we're going to kind of move through the story, we're going to kind of go through the story together, and then see... Where does this bring us at the end? Kind of what, where can we, what sense can we make of it? Because um, like we've said from the beginning, in the very beginning it opens with Jesus coming back from the lake, probably crossing the Lake of Galilee. And Jairus, one of the community leaders, one of the most respected men in the whole community, falls at his feet in desperation. And so in general, as we've seen in the previous chapters of Mark, synagogue leaders are not that excited about Jesus. He's not bringing the kind of teaching and healing and message that they want him to be doing and teaching and healing. So in general, he's received a frosty reception from the synagogue leaders. But here's the synagogue leader literally falling at his feet in front of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. So giving him the kind of reception he's received nowhere else. Um, and which just points to us about Jairus' des- desperation. He knows that his daughter is dying. He's willing to put his reputation as a community leader on the line to take a chance on this itinerant teacher and healer, this kind of mysterious Jesus figure, and hope against hope that he can, this man can do something to save her, to save his daughter. And so you think if the story ended here, if it was just Jairus, 
the community leader humbled himself before Jesus, and Jesus went and healed his daughter. It would be a story about religious leaders finally respecting Jesus. It would be a pretty straightforward story about um, these religious leaders finally giving Jesus the respect, the appreciation, the acknowledging his power and authority that he has been lacking throughout the gospel until now. But interestingly, that's not what the story is. That's not what the story is about. Um, because as Jesus is on his way to Jairus' home to, um, to, to, to heal the dying girl, as he's about to solidify his reputation and as a respectable healer, to kind of get everything you would think, um, someone, the kind of respect that he's been missing, he stops. And he senses that someone in the crowd of these hundreds of people, these kind of curious looky-loos who all want to know what's going on, he just sensed that someone has needed him. That someone with a real life-threatening need and a faith that has been forged in the fire of desperation has touched his cloak and is silently, secretly begging him for help. And so if you think of Jesus as someone who's trying to build his reputation as a respected healer, he would just keep walking. So one person out of hundreds needs him. Well, lots of people need him, and he's got this high-profile healing that he's got to get to. And this is the kind of high-profile healing that would legitimize his ministry, that would open doors for him that have been previously been closed. And that's what his disciples want him to do. You can tell. They want him to just like, Jesus, what are you doing? Keep going. Don't stop. You can feel their impatience when they say, you see the crowd of people... You see the people crowding against you. How can you say, who touched me? Like, what? Not again, Jesus. Don't be weird again. Like, let's just keep going. Because to the disciples, it is utterly impossible that he could sense anyone touching them. And it's utterly ridiculous. This is the moment they've been waiting for. And Jesus is letting it pass by. And I think this is such a beautiful moment of kindness and compassion. Um, Jesus is never too busy, he's never too important to respond to the needs of those who have been forgotten or overlooked. He doesn't care about his status, he doesn't care about his reputation, he doesn't care about what his disciples think, he doesn't care about the crowd that are laughing at him and mocking him and smirking because he thinks he can feel somebody who touched him. All he cares about in this moment is finding that woman who desperately needs him. Even though she's too embarrassed, too ashamed, too humiliated to come forward and ask for help. And Arpita and Maggie both noticed this interesting detail that she's been subject to, to bleeding for 12 years. And 12 years is the exact age of Jairus' daughter. And so there might be lots of reasons that Mark includes a specific detail. But something to think about is that for 12 years, Jairus' daughter has been kind of on an... Um, has been on up enjoying privilege, enjoying um, le- luxury and leisure as the daughter of a community leader. So she's been enjoying kind of an upward ascent, and her hopes and prospects are looking better and better and better as she starts to get to the a marriageable age where she becomes a desirable marriage object, <laughs> 12 or 13. But still, um, so her prospects are getting better and better and better. Her life is improving and improving and improving as her 12 years go. Meanwhile, you have the story, the parallel story of the woman with the bleeding, and for 12 years, her life is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. For the 12 years that Jairus' daughter's life is getting better, this woman's life is getting worse. 
She's spending all of her money. She's seeking any help that she can find. She's just desperate. And no one can help her. Nothing can change her situation. And all of her hopes and her dreams and her plans are just falling apart. As Mark describes her, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had sent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So it's interesting that, and unfortunate that this bleeding disease that, that Mark refers to isn't not that uncommon um, in the ancient world. The Talmud, which is an ancient collection of teachings by Jewish rabbis, offers 11 different remedies for diseases like this. So this is not uncommon. She's not necessarily exceptional. Um, but their remedies are not that helpful. They're things like um, tonics or astringents or carrying the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen rag um, or a piece of barley corn that had been found in the dung of a white female donkey. So it's no wonder this woman is desperate, as this is the kind of medical help that they have been offering her for 12 years, that she has spent everything she has for a piece of barley corn from donkey dung. And so, and these, so these diseases aren't uncommon. This is a common complaint of, um, of women of this time. But they're utterly humiliating. I mean, nobody wants to talk about their menstrual cycle. Nobody wants to talk about bleeding. Like, this is embarrassing today, let alone thousands of years ago. Especially in an ancient Jewish tradition where women were considered ceremonially, un- ceremonially unclean during their menstruation. And they had to separate themselves from the community. They couldn't participate in worship with the rest of their community. They were isolated. They were alone. And they had to go through a cleansing process to re-enter community again. But this woman can't do that. She never stops bleeding. She never gets to cleanse herself. She never gets to re-enter community. So for 12 years, she hasn't been able to worship with at the synagogue with her community. She hasn't been able to interact with members of her community. She's been alone. She's been desperate. And she's getting increasingly worse, increasingly hopeless. And so now we have her in the situation in this crowd. And she's heard of this Jesus. She's heard of the healings he's, per- he's performed other places. But she's in this bind. She's ceremonial uncle- ceremonial un- ceremonially unclean. There we go. So anyone she touches will be unclean as well. Anyone she interacts with will be unclean as well. So who's going to want to touch her? This Jesus who is traveling, who is growing a reputation, who is a respected healer, he's not going to want to touch an unclean woman. And so she does it secretly, desperately, hoping that no one will notice and trusting that it will work. And so it's no wonder that she is terrified when Jesus stops in his tracks and demands to know who touched him. Her perfect plan, her secret plan is unraveling. She probably never suspected that he would ever have any idea in this huge crowd that one hand reached out for probably no more than a moment and touched his cloak. And she has broken so many social and religious taboos, she probably has no idea what Jesus is going to do. So she falls at her feet, his feet. Jesus, uh, Mark says, trembling with fear, terrified. But yet at the same time terrified, but knowing she's been healed. So knowing that she risked everything and it worked, she's been healed, she can feel it. And in this moment when she is terrified and confused and overwhelmed, Jesus shows her immense compassion. He calls her daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So just by touching Jesus' cloak, she has already been healed physically. 
But Jesus stops so he can send her off in peace. Like Ray said, he can send her off in wholeness, not in fear. And let everyone who's avoided her, scoffed at her, failed her, know that she's healed. And I think this is a beautiful moment. This is one of my favorite moments in the Gospels. But it's a complicated moment. It's not unmarred by tension. Because while this beautiful, compassionate, profoundly humanizing moment is happening with this woman who has suffered for 12 years, and Jesus calls her daughter, he's delayed too long. He's delayed too long with one daughter of God and seemingly neglected the other the one he was supposed to be healing in the first place. So he spent too long with one woman and the other girl, and Jairus' daughter has died. So he seemingly has healed one at the cost of the other. And you can only imagine how Jairus is feeling right now. So he has humiliated himself in front of the entire town, thrown himself at the feet of Jesus in an act of desperation, and then had this exhilaration, Jesus is coming, he's going to heal his daughter, he's going to make everything better. And then for whatever reason, Jesus just kind of stops, has this long conversation with a random, unknown, unclean woman who has not been part of the synagogue for 12 years. He might not even know this woman. And because Jesus delays, his precious daughter is dead. All hope is gone. Everything he's worked for, everything he's sought for has been wasted. Jesus got distracted and spends the precious last moments of Jairus' daughter's life ministering to a nobody. To someone who has already even been healed and didn't even need it. And so Jairus is upset. The crowd is mocking him. And Jesus doesn't care. He is unaffected, unflustered, indifferent. He's indifferent to their praise, and now he's indifferent to their criticism. He, and this is the best part. He kicks everyone out. He's like, you're going to laugh at me? Get out. You're not welcome in this house. If you are going to mock me, if you're not going to respect what I am doing, then get out. You are not welcome here. He kicks everyone out of the house but the girl's parents and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And remember, these are the three disciples who are like, Jesus, what are you doing? Keep going. Don't stop. But he gives them another chance. He allows them to witness what he's doing. And then it's as if he was just waking her from a nap and not from her deathbed. He reaches out, he takes her by the hand, and says, little girl, get up. And you've got to remember, so he's already, the woman with the issue of the blood has touched him, making him unclean. And by touching a dead body... Um, He also, again, violates Jewish socio-religious codes, and he would be considered defiled, unclean. You do not touch dead bodies. But he's undeterred. It does not bother him. He doesn't even hesitate. He's undeterred by the suffering, by the pain, by the shame, by the defilement. Just like the woman with the bleeding, he reaches out to the people everyone else avoids. He physically and he literally extends himself when everyone else flees. And it's fascinating to me, he just says this very simple phrase, little girl, I say to you, get up. There's not particularly special words. It's not a magical incantation. There's no dramatic moment or dramatic act. It's just a simple command spoken with divine authority. And probably no one expects anything to happen. There's probably low expectation in the room at that point. But yet, all of a sudden, she gets up. 
And the detective says she walks around as if nothing had happened. So she doesn't just kind of like blink and she's still ill, she's still unwell, she's still on the brink of death. She makes a hundred percent recovery by the touch of Jesus' hand, Jesus' hand and the sound of his voice. And if she had not died, she has been resuscitated before the eyes of her parents. And this is the best part. Jesus says, get this girl something to eat. Because clearly after you die and are resurrected, you're hungry. You need a little bit of a sandwich after that. But it's so human. He cares so deeply about the, every aspect of this girl. That he wants to care about each aspect of her life to make sure each of her needs are met. It's not just a show. Look, I've done this miracle. It's what does this girl need? What, how can I meet her needs? So like we said, we see these two healing narratives back to back with one seemingly interrupting the other. Um, and in both healings, we see Jesus respond to the faith, the humility, and the desperation of the person. And I would argue that these, that these are important healing scenes, but I think they're also more than healing scenes. That they've been preserved together in this order with the interruption just as it is to help us learn to keep trusting and believing in Jesus even when all hope seems gone. All hope seemed gone for the, the woman. All hope seemed gone for Jairus' daughter. But they keep believing, they keep trusting, they keep persevering. And Jesus responds in his own time frame, in his own way. I'm sure we can all have testimonies of times that Jesus has responded in a different time frame, in a different way than we thought or wanted. And sometimes, like we see in the story, things get worse before they get better. They get sometimes much, much worse before they get better. But again, we see Jesus is faithful. He's faithful to answer the the prayers of these two women, of their families, and to heal them both. And so there's obviously the question, why doesn't he heal them sooner? That's always the question in these moments. Why couldn't he have healed Jairus' daughter immediately? Why Why did the woman have to suffer for 12 years? And to be honest, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us, it doesn't indicate why Jesus didn't do it differently. But he is God and we are not, and he has reasons and ways, and sometimes good and faithful people suffer through faults that are not their own, or from any lack in Jesus. But the great part of the story is that when he does heal them, in his own timing and in his own way, just like Ray pointed out, he gives them so much more than physical healing. He gives them so much more than the baseline of what they were asking for. He doesn't just want the woman to stop bleeding. He wants her to be publicly restored. He wants to restore all that has been lost, to have her body healed, her reputation redeemed, her self-worth rebuilt in front of everyone who has rejected her. He more than heals her. He makes her whole. And he doesn't just heal Jairus' daughter. He makes her very life a miracle. When all hope is gone, when everyone has given up, he turns the whole situation around. He restores the faith of her parents, and he makes her life the kind of story that will be told for generations and generations and generations. 2,000 years later, we still tell the story of Jairus' daughter. Her life is a miracle. She's not just healed. And though it may not feel this way to us, Waiting on Jesus is not a punishment. The woman, of, the woman with the issue of the blood is not being punished. Jairus' daughter is not being punished. Waiting doesn't mean that we have done anything wrong. 
It doesn't mean that Jesus is ignoring our requests. Waiting is not a punishment. But we do keep praying and praying and asking God to intervene in our circumstances and our situations. Just like the Jairus and just like the woman, we keep throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus and believing that he will respond. And even when Jesus is answering the prayers of everyone around you but not yours, that doesn't mean he's forgotten you. I'm sure there is a moment when Jairus sees him responds to the prayer of the, peop- of the woman and he says, why her and not me? Why did you save this woman and not my daughter? Because it feels like Jesus is answering everyone's prayers but his. What has she done that I haven't done? Why her and not me? And I think that's something a lot of people feel. Why not me? Why did they get that blessing and not me? When I've been praying for the same thing, for the same amount of time, with the same desperation. But I think it's good to remember what he tells Jairus when his daughter is dead and all hope seems gone. The very phrase that Maggie settled on. Don't be afraid, just believe. And I think this is the, the, the meat that we take from this passage. That in every circumstance when we're pleading with Jesus to intervene on our behalf. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And when Jesus is our last and our final hope and we are on the brink of despair, when there is nothing else that we can depend on to intervene on our behalf, don't be afraid. Just believe. We believe that Jesus is at work on our behalf. We believe that he has heard us, that he is responding, that he is not meeting other people's needs and forgetting us. That we are not abandoned, we are not forgotten, we are not forsaken, we are not overlooked. And I believe that understanding these two stories, the way that these two healing narratives work together, can help us learn to wait well. They can help us understand what do we do when it looks like Jesus is answering everyone's prayers but our own. When it feels like Jesus is delaying. When we've done everything we know to do and still our prayers have not been answered. When we're still waiting on Jesus. It teaches us about Jesus' timing and it can encourage us to keep bringing our requests to the feet of Jesus in faith and humility. If nothing else from this passage and from this message, I hope those words linger with you. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Because I think those are the, that is the key phrase. Because waiting well is hard. I don't know about you, but that is one of the hardest seasons when I'm waiting, believing, hoping, praying, and waiting. Hallelujah. <laughs> Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> um, and if you're in the midst of waiting on God to respond, in an urgent, to respond to an urgent request, to answer an important prayer, we want to just remind ourselves how to wait well. How to wait expectantly. How to wait in a way that doesn't allow fear to destroy our belief. So remember, don't be afraid, just believe. And I would say from just my own personal experience, three things have made it really hard for me to wait well. These are at least for me, and they may be different for you. Jealousy, anger, and fear. Those three things have made it very hard for me in seasons to wait well. When I get jealous that God is answering everyone's prayers but mine. 
when I get angry because it feels like God is ignoring or overlooking my needs. Why doesn't he respond? Why doesn't he do? Why doesn't he just say something back? Why don't I hear anything? And when I get fixated on kind of my earthly circumstances and fear consumes me and shakes the foundations of my faith. There's no way that Jesus can do anything now. It's too late. The situation is too far gone. There's no, nothing can help me now. So if you've been waiting and praying about a circumstance or a situation and God's timing has not been your timing, you're waiting, you're losing hope, you're getting discouraged, you're finding yourself asking, why is this person getting what they want and not me? What is not enough about me? What am I doing wrong? We wanted to spend a few minutes resetting our hearts so we can wait more faithfully. So if you've been jealous, jealous of all that Jesus is doing for everyone else, we want to just repent of that jealousy. It's not helping you. It's not advancing your hopes or your dreams or your plans. And if you've been angry, we want to just release that anger. And if you've been fearful, we want to ask God to replace that fear with his perfect love. So there's a lot that we can glean from these healing narratives. But I think that they remind us not to be afraid, but to have faith that Jesus is healing our lives and our situations, even when all hope seems gone. But the question for you guys is, what do you need to do to let go of your fear and and to believe? What does it mean for you to don't be afraid, just believe? And if you look at your bulletins, there's a little bit of space. We're just going to have a little time of reflection. I invite you to just think about a situation where you are waiting on Jesus to redeem your circumstances, to answer a prayer, to revive a hope that feels dead. A long-held dream that just feels like it is fading away and dying. If you've been struggling with jealousy, if you feel like other people get the things that you want, spend a little time just confessing that to Jesus. If you're feeling angry, like, Jesus, where are you? Why haven't you intervened on my behalf? Spend a little time addressing that with Jesus. And if you're really struggling with fear, share that with Jesus. Allow him to lift your burdens. And then when you're done, I just invite you to make this a, um, a statement, a mantra almost for yourself this week. Jesus, I trust you with whatever your circumstance and situation is, and I believe you will whatever you need him to do on your behalf. Help me not to be afraid, but to believe in you. So we'll give you a little time. Just do the part that is significant for you. Whatever is drawing your heart and your, and your mind. And then we will um, we'll close in prayer.